Okay, I did not expect to be having returning guests uh, on Hunkering Down with Peter Shorsch. I was hoping that uh, I'd be able to start seeing people before we <laughs> before we went back to the top of the order. But joining me today is State Representative James Grant. How are you, buddy? Good, brother. Trying to stay sane, man. You know, one of the things that I didn't ask that I now wanted to ask you is, because I don't know the answer to this question. I'm not being my usual smart ass. What, what's, what is the, what's your name right now? <laughs> like, I mean, you just have so many, like, you have like, you know, I always know you as Jamie, but then I see JW, I see James, I see James W. So, and I, and like, as the son of somebody who, you know, I'm Peter Shorsch, I'm Peter D. Shorsch, which I was the first one in nine generations to not have a J as a middle name. So my dad was Peter J and before him was Peter John. And so that went back for a while. So I, I get the, I, I'm respectful and really dig on the names, but where where are you at right now on names? So, so same place I've always been. Uh, and I'm gonna out myself on a little secret that's, that's actually pretty helpful in the Capitol and in the process when people come up to you and try and pretend like they know you or pretend they're your friend. Anybody that's known me my entire life, it's been one of two things, Jamie or JW. Okay. Um, James has never been really what I went by. It, it actually comes in handy pretty nicely when people walk up and they want to lobby you or ask you for something and they pull the, hey, James, it's, it's so good to see you. It's been a while. <laughs> the family. You just, or you get the email that says, hey, James, how you been? And, and you just know they're, they're a liar and they don't know you. So it's a, it's a nice little filter, but I guess I, I, I may have... Uh, mitigated the filter by by outing myself there, but yeah, it's always Jamie or JW to anybody that's ever known me. I uh, I am definitely not Pete, um, <laughs> and like it's so not many people have called me Pete. Um, yeah, but I'm like, gonna start now. I, I, don't I know, know, right? I mean, everybody, I, like, yes, everybody. Yes. Hey, Pete Shorsh. Um, like I think Pete's the bartender at Bennigan's. Uh, I don't know who Pete is. Um, and Michelle will hear it every now and then. She'll she's like, did somebody just call you Pete? And I'm like, yeah. And um, Adam Geary over at the Stratagos group, you know, he's from Long Island, and so he thinks we got this New York thing going on. So he's always like, Pete, Pete. And so, like, I was very, it was like, I was like almost proud of myself because I finally, I'm like, dude, I gotta tell you something. We've been down this road now for like, as a friend for like years. I got to back up and start over. I'm Peter. And <laughs> like, I appreciate it. And it's, it does sound more enthusiastic when you're like, Hey Pete, but yeah, I'm, I'm Peter. And I don't know, I don't know where that started, but I don't, the other thing for you is, you know, like, cause we always want to be uh, respectful on when we're, you know, talking about lawmakers, um, you know, their names. So is it, you know, do you like, do you like James Grant or J.W. Grant? Like, because I would just write Jamie Grant, it passed this bill. But that's kind of like unfamiliar. So what is your what's your stage name? <laughs> so, so I'm going to answer it the other way. I hate titles. Um, I, I, to me, one of the most like surreal and obnoxious parts of being elected is that you spend half of your life or part of your existence with people calling you chairman or representative. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just obnoxious. Like I, my, my name is Jamie or JW. That's what I've been called my entire life. That's what I want to be called. And so um, I, I get that people want to be respectful and, and I certainly respect the office and respect the process. 
Um, but I'm in a borrowed seat. I, I'm in a I'm in a borrowed existence right now, whether it's my chairmanship or, or representing District 64. And so, like, I, I just I, I don't know. I, I think there's I'm convinced I have some colleagues that like get their pajamas embroidered with the Florida seal and, and chairman or representative on it. Um, and, and it's one of the things I struggle with, uh, having grown up around the process a little bit is that, you know, you and I have talked about it a little bit. I, I resent this process in a lot of ways, um, for, for just growing up with a dad that was gone all the time and, and what I've seen the process do and, and dealing sometimes with the, the public, uh, persona and the fishbowl you live in. And so like, to me, I just, when I, I appreciate that people respect the office, I respect the office, but but I didn't change when I got elected. My birth certificate didn't change and my death certificate won't, won't change either. I'll always be Jamie. I'll always be JW. And I don't know. I, I, I like to think that being elected, you can, uh, I, I think I'm still just a dude. Uh, I'm just an ordinary, ordinary guy that, that has a, an opportunity to, to, to work on some public policy and do some pretty cool stuff in this, in this borrowed amount of time I have. Um, Jamie Grant humble, uh, which you have, I, I will say, um, you're braggadocious in your, uh, no, I should say people should not confuse being loquacious with being braggadocious. And, um, I know that you have held ever since I've talked to you, you've kept the, um, the trappings of office kind of at arm's length. Um, and I will say going to, I don't know where this whole thing, like where we started the honorific of chairman for like people that are like you're like the chair of a house subcommittee. Um, and suddenly you're, you know, you're, you're chairman, Randy fine. And like, we're supposed to refer like everything now is chair. And not that Randy's the person doing this or not doing this, but it's just like, nah, I don't think, I think I'm good with speaker and maybe speaker designate, but like, I think we can flatten this with just state representative. And I see like on the fundraising invitations, I see chairman Byron Donalds. And I'm like, chair of of what like no i i don't i don't dig on that one that yeah i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to say you're right on that one so, um, so interesting interesting little experiment for you cuz i know you like doing like the polls and 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 some fun like uh non traditional or non obvious stuff in the process uh great indicator is uh, is who has the state license the state legislator license tag and better indicator is the retired legislators that still have the license tag oh Pretty yeah good directional math uh, that they they're in the position of of believing that the greatest thing that ever happened to them was was being elected to the Florida legislature. There's somebody, God, I forget the story, and I'm trying to think about how how we got to it. Um, I think it's a U.S. rep, but I'm not sure who still has like their email as like Congressman Bill Posey at gmail.com. God, I can't remember <laughs> what it is. Like, but yeah, there's a lot of people that still. That still pull that like if I see Jim Frisch, I'm not going up to him and be like, hey, uh, Representative Frisch. I mean, it's like I get it if you're like you're Jim King, like when he was alive. Yeah, you're senator and you're kind of senator for life. But like if you do like four years in the state house. I don't know. I don't know if, if you get to. And I look, say and, we, this- and we sound harsh. We sound harsh. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just I, I look at it no differently than I'd look at an athlete, right? Like they either did something in the arena that people remember them for and and accomplish things that people talk about, or they didn't. And 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 it's not to say that that one is good and one is bad. It's just to say that neither changes who you are, right? Like you're still the son of who you're the son of. You're still the the dad or the husband to who you're the dad and husband to. And 
And I think that's a lot of times what, what you see eat people up in the process is they just forget that they are the exact same person that they were before they ran for office as they are, you know, after being elected or being a chairman or being a speaker. Um, and, and I think sometimes, look, the, the biggest takeaway I have on it, Peter, is um, and I was fortunate to kind of come in with the perspective and, and some really smart people around me. But you better have your friends to keep you grounded. You better have your friends to to make fun of you. You better have your friends to to make you realize that that you're still just a dude living a normal life. You just do it a little differently than some of your friends do. I don't want to go too far down this road on this podcast. Um, although, like, I was listening to, it was a very meta discussion. Um, Joe Clemens got me uh, hooked to this podcast, The Portal. And I guess the guy is an advisor or a close friend with Peter Thiel. And so they were, his last guest, they were like meta discussing what works on podcasts and content. And they were just like, you know, they constantly, a lot of people go back to the Joe Rogan model. Like every time somebody comes to me and says, oh my God, your podcast is too long. And I'm like, Joe Rogan is like three hours and it is the biggest podcast. It's not just the biggest podcast. It's the biggest anything out there. Like people are like, oh my God, three million people watched um, the new Netflix show. And I'm like, yeah, you know Joe Rogan, like he could literally just like hum for an hour and he would get 15 million listeners or something like that. Like, so I, I, I hate like cutting things off, um, but I'll, I'll, I want to, I, I want, I love, I want to address something because I think it'll be good. I think it's good fodder for a podcast. You and I don't have a, like a 100% like I know you're better friends, um, and there are people in the um, process who you are much better friends with, and you and I do have uh, we've had our our moments of of rockiness, right? I mean, and I I think that that is, and I bring that up because I feel like people right now are so binary. They are really. They are hitting unfriend and they are turning people and they're they're a family members. They're getting rid of them because they're saying stay at home or or the media is a virus. And I don't know. It's like like you and I clearly like, you know, like we had issues during your race for speaker. You and I don't agree on a lot of political philosophy stuff. We've had other little sporadic things that have popped up where you're like, hey, man, why are you piling on here? Um, and where, and you turned out to be right in that situation. And so, I don't know, like, what do you, like, what is a friend to you? Like, is a friend somebody who's, you know, always on your side or is it somebody that you feel like you can, you know, you can, that there are going to be bumps in the road? No, I, th I think anybody who's always on your side. And, and when you, when you put it that way, anybody who always agrees with you is maybe the way I'd put it is absolutely not a friend. Um, it, it, I'd, I'd perhaps maybe call him a lobbyist. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I mean, look, it, like anybody who sits there and says, you're right, you're funny, you're smart, you're charming, go get them, Mr. Chairman. You know, it, when we talk about it in the context of the legislative world, those, those are not friends. Um, I think a friend is, is really uh, one thing. I think a friend is willing to jump in any foxhole with you when, when you're really in a war. Um, and I think a friend is also willing to have conflict uh, in a healthy, respectful, adversarial um, amount of friction, right? Because if 
if you're not actually debating different things and thinking through different things and, and being challenged and being pushed, you're not really being made better. And we think about it so easily in the context of, of athletics and, and maybe two-a-days or uh, you know, the battery reporting and pitchers and catchers getting workouts and all those kinds of things. We understand that the sharpening of the, the sword in a, in a physicality sense. I don't know that we always think about it from a, from a, a mentality kind of way. Um, and so I think friends are always pushing you and challenging you. I think the, the the best example I'd give when you think of some of my best friends in the process over the time. But, you know, when I first got here, Richard Corcoran and Carlos Trujillo and I spent a, a, a lot of time together. And if people could watch us in a private setting, go back and forth. And, and I mean, they would literally sit there if they could see a camera of it and go, man, I thought these guys were like best friends. They hate each other. And inside the locker room or inside the process of actually going through the exercise of what do we think, what do we want to do, uh, we we got after it. Um, with that said, by the time we walked out to the world, we were a team, um, and, and we understood that we were a team. And so I think I think really when you think about friends, it's the ability to have that conversation inside the locker room and simultaneously um, be able to maintain respect in the way that you handle it publicly. I um. The lobbyist thing on the friends it, for lawmakers, like, I just, it's like the Hooters waitress, man. It's like, of course they think you're funny. I mean, it is their job. I mean, and yes, yes, you know, there are, there certainly are people that graduate and matriculate into, you know, that they're still friends and you still have a relationship. Oh, you know, like uh, Garrett Richter. You know, like a lot of people still like Garrett Richter. I'm just I'm thinking about him like a Dennis Jones. Um, yeah, but, but I think I, I'm going to stop you there for a second, because I think you, the, the challenge on our side as the elected is that you don't know until you know. And, and I'll give you the example, Peter. Like I, I, I thought coming in, I, I remember watching my dad term out as a kid my, my entire life. As I remember it until my senior year of high school, my dad was elected. My senior year of football was the first thing my dad was ever at with any level of regularity. And I watched him term out. And I watched all these people that I thought were really close family friends not return phone calls or uh, do things to go after my dad or that kind of thing. I thought, man, these people are not your friends. They, they took advantage of you while you were there. So I had that historical context when I got here. That said, when, when I went through a six or seven month reset where I'm gone um, and I'm going through litigation every day and we're trying to figure out what my future holds, there might have been 10 people in the process who reached out. There might have been 10 lobbyists who said, Hey, man, how are you doing with this? I just wanted to check on you. Um, I then get, get reelected and I drive up that night when polls close to get sworn at like 830 the next morning. And Peter, I'm not exaggerating when I say I put my phone on my thigh while I was driving my truck and I couldn't count to one Mississippi without a, a Twitter notification or a text message. And they were nothing but people in the process, lobbyists. So great to have you back, Mr. Chairman, you know, <laughs> over the top, on and on and on. And for seven months when I could do nothing for them, I didn't exist. And so it was actually an interesting I remember you and I talking about that. I remember yeah, this. A, I, I, I was outside of a Pier 1. I just remember that conversation, you and I talking about, you know, Jamie Grant in exile. Like, you know, when – yeah, I just I just remember that conversation for whatever it's worth. Go ahead. Yeah, for, for yeah. So for, for to your point, so for, for seven months, I couldn't file bills. I couldn't work on appropriations. I, I didn't have a vote to cast in a committee or on the floor. And so I was dead to these people. And then all of a sudden I came back and I was giving committee assignments and I could file bills and I could do all these things. And even worse, the, the kind of the presumption of a, a, a speaker or speaker finalist kind of thing. And and so now all of a sudden I have more friends than I know what to deal with. It was a phenomenal opportunity for me to see kind of who my real friends are 
Um, and who's who's here to kind of transactionally take advantage of, of our relationship. And, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the professional relationship where people say, hey, I need you to work on this. And if it's something I agree with, I'll, I'll work on it. But I, but I'm not under the auspice that we're friends. We're, we're colleagues. You know, I I don't blame the lobbyist either. Like it's their job. Right. I mean, like yeah. we're, we're fools to think like, you know, uh, not it's not me, but like. It's 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 like people telling me, you know, how great Sunburn is. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, if I put your name in the middle of it and bury it uh, tomorrow, <laughs> that you suck. Did you really? Uh, I, I bet you won't even how see long that. until. Yeah. yeah. How, long? how many days in a row could you do that? And then they're like and I'm like, you, you think Sunburn's so great, but I've, I've called you a motherfucker in Sunburn halfway through and you haven't, you know, you haven't said anything. So, and, oh, I meant to read it, but it's been. Um, and so, no, it's, 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 look, it's, to your point, it's the old Milton Friedman about, about corporate welfare. I don't blame the companies. I don't blame the people who come to government and say, I want a handout. I want you to offer me this program or I want you to give me special treatment. I blame government for, for making it accessible. And, and to your point, I don't blame anybody who plays the game the way that the game is, is set out and defined. It's, it's, it's interesting as an elected to kind of set up the game inside your office, right? And, and to let the ecosystem know, here's how we operate. Um, and it's on it's on substantive intellectual honesty. It's it's not going to be on anything else. But I, I think you get different games, um, different places. But the lobbyists, their job is literally to figure out what moves you and, and try and move you. Well, like so that brings up a kind of a, uh, a, a I don't know. This is a veer. But so we don't blame. Do you blame the Lakers or Roots Chris for? No. For, yeah. Like, I don't think no. you can. How can you? And by the way, who I actually take exception with is is now some members of the big media who are asking and advocating for an exception for themselves with corporations over 500 people, right? They want an exception for themselves to go above 500 people while they vilified, you know, Shake Shack, the Lakers and anybody else. And it's like, guys, goose gander. How about meeting yourself somewhere? But how do I blame somebody? for taking advantage of an opportunity that's laid out that they're eligible for. Well, and like, uh, this is gonna sound, uh, I'm not looking for praise on this, but I genuinely did not take a PPP loan or did not even apply for it. Uh, number one, because I really didn't think it was appropriate. Like, I didn't think like, like our business has not suffered so greatly that, uh, and we've lost, like we lost one major advertiser, we took a haircut from it. We lost a second mid-tier advertiser, and we took a, a a significant haircut from a third. And so I could have easily justified, hey, month over month, we're down this, and just have gotten loans for that. Um, but I just felt like there were so many other people in need. Like, like I just like how can, I mean, we're still together, we're still ninety percent whole. How can? How can you do that when there's, you know, when the, you know that there are people like we just I just heard something last night uh, about like in my like our we have we have 12 friends or 12 families, fr family friends who both parents are, you know, laid off. And so yeah. it's like it's not just one. It's it's both. It's like, right, man, how do you solve that? Like, I mean, how do you and that's the worst part of this whole job thing. I remember in 08. Um, like when I was in New York, you know, and the market was collapsing, there were still jobs to be had. You just had to literally pound the pavement. It sucked, Correct. but 
That is, and and it would take all day. I remember. And you I had remember. to answer, and you had to answer. What am I willing to work for? Yeah, you might take a cut, right? But but there was a job to be had. There was a job. I I know it. I I I remember. I this is like my you know Terra moment that I'll never go hungry again. But I remember in New York City there really isn't public water. <laughs> I didn't really know this. Like it just everybody drinks out of bottled water. So there's like and you, there just isn't like water fountains there. It's not the same or it just I don't know. And so I didn't prepare for that. And so like. And I really had no money. Like I had zero dollars after I had just enough, you know, for like the subways and stuff. And so I was thirsty. I was literally thirsty because I didn't have enough money for water. And I, I used a Barnes and Nobles gift card that I remembered that I had. And I remembered that Barnes and Nobles had like a snack bar and I bought like $22 worth of stuff. But I know I remember that day because I spent all day and I finally got a waiting table job at a place, you know, like, it, it, you know, I can't believe I worked there, uh, but I got it. And but that is not there right now for people like you can't you can't even go out on the streets to pound the pavement to go look for a job. So so I, I um, agreed, Peter, and, and, and I think we could uh, or Pete, as I know you like to be called. Um, <laughs> We could do a whole segment um, when you think about um, what we have watched unfold before our eyes over the last two months. Um, but but history is being made, and, and that's not to sound hyperbolic. Uh, and when I say history is being made, I, I mean like a case study that generations will look at um, because we have just committed economic suicide. The question is how long um, until a rebirth and a reopening can happen. Um, I don't know that I could have ever imagined a scenario. If you would have come to me six months ago and said, I'm going to give you a scenario where nobody's going to be in church on Easter. March Madness is going to be canceled. Spring training is going to be canceled. The Stanley Cup playoffs are going to be canceled. Next year's college football season is going to be in jeopardy. On and on and on and on. And I, and I told you that something short of World War III <laughs> happened, you'd have never believed me. If I would have told you that government could arbitrarily de determine who's essential and who's non-essential, I would tell you you're either watching The Handmaid's Tale or, or, or something draconian, dystopian of that, of that ilk, right? When, when we get to a place where government can determine that your livelihood is either essential or not, we no longer live in the republic that was created. And so the only question for us moving forward is, is how do you get out of it, right? And, and to your point, like, look, I respect everybody's decision on the PPP front, but at the end of the day, like, we're, we're in uncertain times. I don't judge anybody who goes after that that funding not knowing the, the the future of their business and what the backside of this recovery is going to look like i come back to the same quote i blame government when you drop you know 2.6 trillion dollars out of the sky and you think it's going to be efficiently distributed um I, i've got some oceanfront property in idaho to tell to, to sell you because it, it's just never going to happen it's a mess man and and i don't know I don't purport to or pretend to know what the backside of it looks like, but I don't think we are soberly looking at how draconian the impacts of what has happened over the last few months are going to be on our way of life and how long it's going to take to get back to some semblance of normal. The All right, I'll go – I'll reverse up and say I agree 1,000 percent with the overall level um, and like this is my – and I do this in every pod – 
It's where Pete tells says, I told you so. Uh, so it's very annoying. But it's like, I've been on coronavirus as early as anybody. And I keep trying to tell people, you know, like, oh, May 1st. I'm like, man, you don't understand how coronavirus works and you don't understand how government works. Um, and you and you clearly don't understand how, 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 I guess, like, not consumer confidence, but psychology works. It's like no parent is going it, like it's it's a risk reward thing. If there is, you know, if I give you 10 M&Ms and one of them can kill you, you will not eat any of the M&Ms. If I give you 100 M&Ms and one of the M&Ms will kill you, you still will not eat any of the M&Ms. So we're in that phase where it's like one in 1,000 or one in 10,000, and you have to decide whether or not you want to do it. And people will eat the M&Ms at one in 10,000. Um, and so, but when you ask parents, hey, there is a one in 100 chance that your child will probably get very, very sick if we put them in a, in a daily contained environment with other children who are you know, coming all over the place. And if your child has a underlying condition, like they were born, you know, premature, or they have uh, respiratory issues or asthma, parents aren't going to engage that. And so, and I'm not saying that they're right or wrong about that. I'm just saying, like, the idea that we were going to come back May 1st or May 8th, 15th, or whatever, um, with the level of fear that is out there, whether or not that fear is justified or not, like... This is going to be, it's going to be December before you're sitting next to somebody on a bus. Like, it's just, it, it's just not going to happen. And I, now that doesn't, I have no solution to that. I mean, I just, I think people have got to be prepared for that. And that sucks. Like, I've got this banner in front of my house. We, we um, you know, we love the Christmas lights. And so we asked the lighting company to come out and do patriotic lights. I call them freedom palms. Um, and I put a banner up there. It says, stay home, stay healthy, stay strong. And it's got like a heart with like an American flag in it. It's supposed to be like patriotic and unifying. And people drive by and like give it the thumbs down because they think I'm telling them to stay home. They're basically saying, don't tell me to stay home. I got to go out and work. And so it is just, there is so much in this. I think you're so right. Like this is, this is World War III and we don't even know it. And it is going to change every aspect of our society. And even if the coronavirus doesn't, like you say, you drop out $3 trillion in free money out there. The fraud, the, I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it, is re, it is nothing short of revolutionary. You're right. This yeah, is going that, to be the history that we study for years. Yeah, and, and I think, look, inflation and deflation don't care about why the money just dropped out of the sky. Right. Like inflation and deflation, the, the simple principles of economics still continue in the midst of, of a pandemic. I, I will say this. I, I think one of the things and I'll go back to what you talk about, kind of being binary and, and maybe the cancel culture and people losing family over the way they're handling different stuff. But uh, one of the things that I think and, and look, this is one of the the the, uh, the little spats we've we've had uh, where, where you took exception. We kind of got into it a little bit, I think, in a, in a substantive and fun way. I think some people enjoyed it. But. Um, I've taken great exception to the way that people have tried to politicize this issue, because at the end of the day, if we can't come together and acknowledge that we societally don't understand and know enough about coronavirus to, to chart the quickest, safest pathway out of this, 
then what does it take, right? Like we're committing economic suicide. We're watching loved ones pass away. We're dealing with a global pandemic. And we still have people with no responsibility to actually govern, just taking pot shots at people who happen to have the responsibility to govern at this point. And the reason I think that matters, Peter, is when we think about when we can return back to normalcy and we think about what the pathway really should look like, government's role in this should be to provide some leadership and to convey some trust predicated on fact. And, and I think you know me well enough to know in all of our public and private conversations, uh, never do I suggest that the blue team is, is liars and the red team is truth or vice versa in, in any kind of bucket or, or team or demographic break. At the end of the day, if we can't get everybody on the same team right now to say how do we constructively come to the table, put everything else aside and figure out how to open this place up for business, um, we're going to watch the, the, the response to the pandemic kill exponentially more people than the virus ever could. And, and, and you can go all the way through the case study, right? At one point, you know, you, you watch, go back, Peter, uh, to, to some of the articles and some of the tweets and different stuff about how you were a racist if it was the China virus or if you referred to Wuhan. And, and it's like, guys, it, they're, they're, it's a fact that this originated in Wuhan. Now let's figure out how. Lab, bat, all the different theories. Look, look, if we can't sit at a table and put truth in the middle of it, regardless of progressive, conservative, Republican, Democrat, or anything else, we're going to prolong the period by which we stay in the state, and, and we're going to exponentially increase the consequences for our own behavior. We're doing it to ourselves. Okay, well, let, or let's let's take a step into that then. Like, and I, see, this is my problem, and it's because I don't wear blue or red. I wear blue checkmark with on a red shirt. I sometimes <laughs> agree very yeah, much yeah. with you, yep. and I pop people. Like, listen, I'm getting shit from uh, you know, like the Wilton Simpson people think, oh, Nikki freed your girl. And the Democrats are just like, oh, didn't you write, you know, the, uh, Ron DeSantis is, you know, you gave him an up arrow last week. And, and that's part of it. And, you know, big deal. You know, like uh, my, I'm glad people are reading. Um, but for the average citizen, it's such a turnoff for me. I'm just like, no, like Ron DeSantis isn't mini Trump. And no Evan Power of the Leon County GOP, he has not done no wrong. Like he, you know, like he he has done some things right, and the state has done some, some things right, and we have done say, some things gravely wrong. Like, yes, we are we are gonna lose nowhere near the amount of people that we have thought the or that the models projected that we were gonna lose. But we also have hundreds of thousands of Floridians out of work and the one thing that the governor is in charge of that he like he can't control rate of spread on coronavirus he's not in charge of the hospitals he can't you know make every person go home and all that or stay off the beach but the one thing he can do is he is in charge of that unemployment system and so he, that but and even if you blame i mean and so Blaming him for that is fair or criticizing him and his administration for that is fair, but it's not zero sum. And it's like, man, you read Facebook, you read social media and it's like, you know, the memes are out there. You know, Ron DeSantis, he can't put on a mask, a surgical mask. So he clearly can't govern the state. And you're just like, that's not accurate. That's not fair. That's not helpful. You know, what is helpful is, I think is, hey, you give Ron DeSantis an up arrow because... 
of this, and then you give Ron DeSantis a down arrow and you say, man, Ron, I really like what you're doing on the reopen task force, but couldn't you have put a freaking woman on there? And, you know, it's like, but that kind of criticism is not there. And the other pundits, like, I think about it, like Craig Pittman from the Tampa Bay Times now with the Florida Phoenix. Has he ever in his entire journalistic career written a story in which a Republican who's not a Republican in name only, I mean, has he written a story where like, hey, you know what? That environmental committee over there, they've disappointed me the last five years, but they really did put 200 additional million dollars into springs preservation or whatever. And that's kind of a surprise. And we need to give chairman's X, Y, and Z a round of applause. I've never seen that column out of him. I've never seen Scott Maxwell say, I just have never seen him write a story or an op-ed where the boogeyman at the end of it, or that the Republican featured in it is not the boogeyman. Yeah, no, look, two, two things. Number one, uh, I think it's, it's uh, I laugh sometimes at the simpletons uh, in, in society, right? The, the people that get on this pious high horse um, that, that have the ability, whether they're the, the elected, the chairman, the representative, the senator, um, or they're a member of the press, right? But I always find a, a special level of, of hypocrisy and irony with the Maxwells of the world um, in this regard. I would suggest to you that whether you're an elected filing a bill or you're a publisher, if everybody's not mad at you at some point, you're not really doing anything and you're not where you should be. So if I want to go just be a super partisan Republican that, that just takes my marching orders from a governor or a president and, and files the stuff that is prototypical Republican all the time and attaboy from Republicans and those people like me, well, then I'm probably not really doing all that much in, in the way of significant public policy. On the flip side, if everybody involved with my bill uh, is pissed, then I know I'm moving the right direction. So if I want to work on some civil justice issues, I better have the Florida Chamber and the Florida Justice Association with rustled feathers complaining about stuff's in there, the stuff that's in there because I know that I'm striking a balance. And now the work left to be done is, is to find the right balance. These people that have no balance offer nothing uh, constructive to the process. And so uh, I think that's, that's one way you have to look at it. Um, and then I think that the, the other thing I'd say is, um, you know, one of the things that, that I think gets frustrating sometimes when you get into situations like this and there's so much moving and, and I can't, uh, I'm going to sound like I'm, I'm just carrying the governor's water here, but, but this is as genuine as it can be. Nobody's giving the governor credit for what we did with the Florida digital service this year, long before the connect problem showed themselves to the world. I, so for the first time in my legislative service, working on tech policy for the better part of a decade, this governor, all offseason, his team, all offseason, prioritized, lobbied hard, worked alongside Senator Hudson and myself to create the Florida Digital Service parallel to the U.S. Digital Service um, to, for, for issues exactly like this moving forward. So it is absolutely fair to criticize us for the fact that Connect wasn't ready, wasn't working, and that it was maybe not handled well at the start. But let's also give credit to the fact that we finally have a governor who says, I want a team that is responsible for making sure that, that the policy and the implementation or execution of it work, especially in a digital sense. And I'll give you a great example. It's a great case study to look at. But the U.S. Digital Service was actually being launched in parallel, unrelated, but in parallel timeline to healthcare.gov going live. And, and then President Obama 
pulled the USDS team together and, and kind of looked at this healthcare.gov massive failure and said, well, how do we fix this, right? But you had an executive who had major policy initiatives and watched those major policy initiatives suffer a massive setback because of a website and because of, of a digital infrastructure that, that couldn't handle it. I think we're kind of watching that play out here in Florida. But but look, the same way I would give credit to President Obama for being a visionary to create the U.S. Digital Service, give credit to Ron DeSantis for saying, hey, it's really important that we have an equivalent to that here in the state of Florida so that we can begin to mitigate these problems instead of just seeing them rear up, whether it's Conduit or Connect or whatever's next. Can we just and. I wanted this to be a long podcast or longer um, for the hunkering down, which I'm keeping, um, trying to keep to 15, 20 minutes, but um, I wanted this to be a long one. Do you want to pivot to sports for a minute or so before uh, we jump off? Or did I lose you? I think I lost you. I'm here. You're breaking up pretty good. Yeah, you're breaking up pretty good. I don't know where you lost me. Okay. I was just going to ask you, uh, I, I just said onto the pod, you want to pivot to sports for just a moment because it was, it's actually, it was as big a week in sports as we've had in two months uh, yeah. or maybe six weeks. And it's probably the biggest week that we're going to have. And I'd love to, um, first of all, are you watching the last dance documentary? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm not. Uh, current i'm uh, i got three and four to watch okay uh but man growing up in that era and 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 being a basketball fan as a kid it's talk about just an amazing um i'm just speechless at, at the footage at what they capture it it is surreal to get to live uh in the bulls locker room and around that team uh it it just takes you back to your track I, I could go on forever about how crazy it is to think about the fact that a that's dropping and b it's dropping when we have no sports and it's all we have. Um, it's uh, like the way you say it. Like growing up, I find the people that grew up in that era are. It is a trip down nostalgia, uh, like memory lane that we have that we haven't had in a while. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, like I I don't know what other cultural phenomenon. Maybe like I guess like stranger things um but this a lot of the a lot of like because i think you and i are basically the same age and then like jeff brand is about the same i think jeff and i are very close in age it's like we get confused as children of the 80s which we were um and that was definitely a period but there's also this period like after reagan like 88 89 that goes into like basically 94 that's like a that was Kind of like, you know, it's the George, it was George Bush. So it was like, it was like a spinoff era to this other era. Like it was no longer, you know, the go-go 80s, but it wasn't peace and tranquility 90s yet because you had the Iraq war, um, you had the recession. It was, you know, and, and the sports figures from that era are definitely like, I think of a lot of the sports figures from the 80s as being like kind of holdovers from the 70s, like the cowboy like they got started in the 70s whereas the 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 great teams of the 80s and 90s like they got started later on like i think 86 87 88 that's when the pistons were great the celtics were great the lakers were great and jordan was rising you know like early nba then you still like 82 and stuff like that you still have like dr j and i just don't think of i don't think and moses malone i don't 
associate them in the same way that I do that next generation that came, you know, in the, like for me, the greatest moment of sports will be the dream team of 92. Like that is the greatest team that was ever assembled ever. Like of any sport, I don't know that you can come up Cor- with. A- correct me if correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Leading scorer on the greatest team of all time was a man uh, affectionately known as the Round Mound of Rebound. Uh, Auburn Charles alumni. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chuck, Chuck. If I'm not mistaken, was it? But you're spot on, right? Like here, and and it's probably because I'm a couple few years behind you. Um, for me, like I remember Bird and Magic only because I had a, a brother that was 14 years older, and so like my whole life it just kind of got thrown into sports. I never really had like the cartoon phase and that kind of thing. Um, so I remember the Lake show. I remember uh, Bird and McHale and Parrish a little bit, but like you really get to the the baton being passed when you think about the, the, the Lakers Celtics rivalry in the eighties, the Pistons showing up the bad boys at the end. Um, but, but then you really see the emergence in the nineties of the bulls. Um, not surprisingly, I was a, a Suns fan with Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley and, and of course, Charles Barkley at, um, at that time. But but like you had to, you had to appreciate the greatness of Michael Jordan, and and I laugh now being a, a bit older. But whether it's my nephews or aides and staff in the process that that say, "Hey man, you watch LeBron and MJ play. Like who's the goat?" I, I don't even have LeBron number two. I, I I'm taking Kobe over LeBron, and it ain't even close. I and. and and anybody who watched Michael Jordan, right? Like case closed at this point. Michael and Kobe with a game on the line were taking the ball. And they were the best two scorers and defenders I've ever seen. And I'm not even a huge basketball guy, but I think it's hilarious how all these kids these days want to throw LeBron as and almost like mock. Man, watching Michael Jordan as a competitor is just something that I wish everybody got to experience because I'm not sure we've ever seen anything quite like it. I'm so glad that people like are getting to watch this just as the argument like Kobe's passing, so it's like, mm-hmm. is Kobe greater than where's his, where does he belong on the Mount Rushmore? And then, all right, you kind of say, all right, LeBron's better than Kobe. No. Over, I know, I know. I'm not saying it. I'm just saying LeBron, That that's the argument people want to make. And then you're like, man, you guys don't understand how raw MJ was, like, in a good way. Like, you guys are like, yeah. LeBron is so big and powerful. And I think you have to account for like athletes are different now. And I think you buy in this into this 100%. Like the off season training and all that is just so completely different. And what they're, what people are able to do with our bodies and things like that. MJ would have benefited from that. He would have been, I know he put on the 15 pounds after losing to the Pistons. He would have put on even more um, or he would have gotten stronger and faster. He would have done whatever. This isn't like, this isn't like, you know, when you see the white guys playing for Kentucky from 50 years ago and you know that they would not be able to make it in the NCAA now. I mean, MJ would still be MJ. He would have just adapted just a little bit more. People needed to see, like, MJ of 86, 87 before he was a champion and just see how – in like, there, it's not just, like, vicious dunks. Every play is this incredible – like cut through an angle and a double pump. And you were playing in an era when you look at like the footage, it, you haven't seen it, but like they showed the footage from what the Pistons would do. Yes. So you're you. going right. Yes. No, you, no, no. You That's got right. hit in yes. the stomach. Like, yes. like somebody didn't hit your arm to foul you. 
they actually like they checked you like it, it was a hockey check yeah. and that was the foul and it's like yes. Steph, Steph no Curry would get there Steph no Curry would, wouldn't have lasted there's just no way like he would do that shit where he you know comes into there and tries to shoot and everything like that and Rick Mahorn would have gone out there and dropped him and they would have put I, 20 I'm fouls I'm disagree with, no I'm gonna disagree with you there I think okay. a guy like Steph translates uh, certainly post three-point line. Like one of the things that's fascinating about going back to the documentary is remembering that Michael Jordan played at a time where the three-point line didn't exist. Like that's how old we're getting um, because you don't really think of him as, as pre-three-point line. Steph Curry translates a, as a shooter and Steph Curry translates as somebody who can create space and get his shot off who doesn't translate as LeBron. He's not, he, he's got to, he's got to put his head down, take his three drop the, the shoulder and get to the rim when Patrick Ewan sisters on top of the fact that there were no flagrants and you literally paid a toll to go to the rim. And, and, and that is a different game than we play today. So I have a ton of respect for the guys of today. The They're phenomenal freakish athletes, but you can't in, in, at all pretend that it just translates back to then um, be, because I, I just I go back to it. I, I think it's comical to ask whether LeBron or MJ is the GOAT. Um, it, it, I just don't even know how people can say it with a straight face. I will add this, by the way. The, the last dance was also a really nice reprieve for me uh, because prior to the last dance, we had um, Tiger King. And, uh, and, and getting elected in, in 2010, uh, a place called Big Cat Rescue was in my district. And when people, <laughs> when people discovered uh, that I know the Baskins, uh, my phone blew up. And so it has been really nice. My niece actually texted me. She goes, I just saw your Facebook friends with Carol Baskin. My friends in South Carolina all want to do a Zoom with you and ask you a million questions. When can you do it? Um, and, and so I kind of laugh. Like it's, I mean, Tiger King I thought was phenomenal, but like it's, it's kind of nice to be talking about sports uh, rather than Tiger King. What did you think about um, the, the virtual draft? I mean, did you, did you watch it? I mean, yeah. was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to um, watch it, right? I mean, you're still yeah. – like, I don't know how I will say, like, I don't know how football comes back yet. Like, I think there are other like I hate to say this to you because I I know and you already know this, but like college football is going to be the hardest thing to come back. Because are you going to have college student athletes back on campus in the fall and the people that are going to be the least open to coming back are going to be quite honestly are going to be liberal academic people who are, you know, they're just on the opposite end of the reopen society argument. And so as much as they're driven by the fact, I thought it was very interesting. The president of Brown basically was like, I think yesterday in an op-ed for the New York Times was like, hey, we need tuition though. Like, so we're figuring out a way to bring people back in the fall because there's only, we only bring in revenue twice a year and it's fall and spring, like those big payments. And we need our kids back in fall and it's like oh so maybe you are it, it was just funny how you know the financial started to drive it even for an academic um so i think college football's got the longest road back football behind that but still i think you could start football in october um and people would be fine i mean people are gonna their people would be showing up for it yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll say this. I don't care who's in Jordan-Hare Stadium the first time we have a home game. Um, that, that place is going to be uh, otherworldly that night. And, and I think that's, that's a sentiment for a lot of, of major college football programs. I think everybody's itching to come back. 
Um, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, look, I, I think um, by and large, self-preservation is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful force in, in the universe. And so it's not surprising that people who, you know, we see it all the time. We saw it with some of the Amendment 4 behaviors of, of certain state attorneys who, you know, were sanctimonious until they realized it was hitting their pocketbook. And then they said, well, wait a minute, I, I, I kind of need that money. And, it, and, and ultimately, people have to pick money or principle. Uh, in, in those kind of situations. And so I think you will see provosts and, and boards and, and, and presidents wrestle with the decision of, of how higher ed has changed forever. I think higher ed is one of the things that has been changed probably more permanently and more significantly than anything else. Um, I also think that, that the college campus is probably one of the better places where herd immunity can take place. You're dealing with, by and large, a younger, healthier population um, I think where you can drive the antibodies up, you continue to drive down the, the the threat of the virus. And so I think it is important that we have some conversations and think through, like, you know, herd immunity is a real thing. Developing it is a, is a critical pathway forward. And so what are the safest places uh, or the most significant places we can do that with the, with, with the most minimal amount of impact? And I think college campuses probably offer, uh, certainly no epidemiologists and, and don't play one on TV, but but probably offer one of our populations um, that is is most safe because those kids, by and large, aren't going home to their elderly parents or grandparents, right? It is a no. kind of a universe that exists, right? So, I think that's actually an area that we should be looking at more aggressively. Or certainly, I'd like to see more information on it because, from a logical perspective, it, it kind of goes that route. I think at the end of the day, um, you, you're oh. gonna see. Did you just go to? Did you just go to at the end of the day? I mean, come on, don't legislate here. What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, that's always, uh, I, you know. No, no, no. Like, sorry, no, no. What I mean is it. When you're on the floor, like that's one no, of the no, no, like, yeah, familiar. Yeah, at the no, end of the I day. Mean, <laughs> no, what I mean is when this thing plays out, right, you will see the pressure and the vacuum and people get so pent up and so frustrated with being at home, without sports, without the normalcy. I put it in this context. My entire college um, uh, tenure is slotted for me, by and large, at least in the fall, by, by football weekends. Who'd we have? What happened that week at practice? Where'd we yeah, travel to? Sure. What, what, right? I mean, my, my anchor point for every minute after I, I was fortunate enough to be on staff to, to graduating is anchored around what we were doing at that time. So it was either in the fall and the season or it was the spring and, and spring football and recruiting and all those. That's how we anchored it. That's not all that different for our normal falls. Most of us look at it and go, hey, November means the Iron Bowl and it means a trip to Athens or Georgia coming to Jordan-Hare and September means Baton Rouge. Or We, we think of things in that construct, whether it's college football or, or anything else that are kind of our hobbies or our passions. And I think people eventually get so fed up with everything that's being missed out on. And then I think the other thing is the compounding, uh, the, the compounding price of this economic suicide. And I think eventually people start to say, hey, it might have been one in 10,000 M&Ms when this started, but I'll take one to five right now. Uh, and I think that's, and I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's good. Everybody's ratio will the, move. What part of the fall um, is where you uh, pinpoint when you all drop out of the national championship race? Like, is that, uh, does that date fluctuate or like, like for us, it's you... always late for us. It's always late. <laughs> and, and here's right. And the reason is we have aim in corner, right? So like, um, our, our November is notoriously uh, late October, early November is notoriously crazy for us with, with, um, LSU, uh, Alabama, and then Georgia. And so the, the meat of our schedule, uh, both opportunity and liability is, is towards the end. 
Um, and so it's it's kind of like classic Auburn fan. I don't know if you saw the fans of Troll commercial that the SEC Network did this year, but like every Auburn fan had had both equal parts laughter and trauma watching it because it just it, it showed you exactly what it's like. Uh, it's hope up until the very, very, very end, and then then like a crushing defeat. Yeah. Uh, and that's how every football season is for us. I thought it was interesting in the draft. So many SEC players got taken, and I guess I'm reading like this was the year to go. Like you've seen the SEC players, you don't know unless you're Bill Belichick and whatever pick like he made. Like I think he just like I think he just is like he's gonna put together the oddest team possible just to see that if like there's no sense in him. He's just betting long shots at this point. Like, he's just like, listen, I want as much. I've got so much, so many rings that the only way I'm going to stay on top is to find another Tom Brady-esque long shot out of it. So why not just bet on – I don't even know where the – what school that guy came from. It was like DeVry. Um, but I thought what was interesting <laughs> was, like, the SEC picks got – there were so many SEC picks, and it's because, you know, there aren't – there wasn't the chance to go scout these guys. There wasn't the time for the, you know, the, the, you know, the in-place meetings and the pro days and things like that. And so there's a lot of like, and it kind of sucks also because as you know, better than I do, there isn't like overseas basketball for these guys. There isn't like minor league. There isn't, you know, like if you don't get signed as a undrafted free agent here, it's really hard to break into the NFL and you quickly, your skills quickly deteriorate from not playing. You don't come back three years later and like, oh, I'm still in game day shape. You either get onto a team earlier or you become, um, you know, a salesman at um, AutoNation. Yeah, but, it, well, or, or med device, right? Like you, you start to see sales, uh, being a college athlete, a scholarship college athlete um, comes with phenomenal rewards in the private sector um, for kids who take advantage of the education and know how to use it. But I, I'm gonna go a couple places. One, um, it's hard to, to stick as an undrafted free agent, right? So your undrafted yeah. free agents are already one in a million. It's really hard to stick if you're a fourth round picker later. Um, you know, so so realistically, when we're looking at the, the kids that are taken uh, any given year, uh, yeah, we're going to have stories of a sixth round kid out of Michigan who started maybe a, a year and a half total, uh, who becomes arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. Those stories exist. There's no doubt about it. And, and Ryan Leaf exists on the, on the flip side of it. But by and large, uh, I, I think you see first three, four rounds is where, where somebody's got a real shot at sticking. I actually think there's something else happening here. Um, I think we're actually seeing uh, data and analytics get better from recruit ranking to drafting. And when you look at the trend, right, like, you, you, you know, anybody who follows college football recruiting will have the stars conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I think what you're seeing is that become more and more and more precise as you're seeing more people in the space, more film uh, accessible, more seven on seven camps, more ability to assess a kid uh, against elite talent rather than just their high school game tape. And so I think I think that's playing a role um, in, in why you're seeing more four and five star kids being drafted higher and higher and higher. Uh, but I think the second thing that a lot of people don't realize until um, and, and I'm not even saying this is a good thing. Missing a pro day. Um, not that big of a deal. Yeah, a pro day is an opportunity for a, for a guy to really shine that somebody didn't know about. But most of these guys that are eligible for the draft this year have been on radars for a year, two or more. And, and so a lot of the work was done. I, 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 I'm not saying that more information, the in-person meetings, I think are important. Um, you know, the Wonderlick's always a, a fascinating. I did, I did notice, I can't pass this opportunity up. I did notice a kid, I can't remember 
uh, who it was. I think it was one of the wideouts at Alabama. And I don't want to say the name. I think it was because I, I don't want to pick on the wrong guy. But he was a straight A student at Alabama and had a nine on the Wonderlick. And if that doesn't tell you about Alabama's football program, I don't know what does. Um, <laughs> but but jokes aside, right? Like, you know, the Wonderlick, the in-person meetings, a lot of that stuff matters. But I mean, we would have we would have scouts on campus, you know, every year. Um, and yeah, the 04 team that had Jason Campbell and Carlos Rogers and Carlos uh, uh, or, uh, and Carnell Williams and Ronnie Brown and uh, Marcus McNeil and all those guys. Yeah, we had a lot more scouts on campus that year. And that gave a lot of exposure to guys who might not have had a scout there at the time. But, but a lot of that scouting work's done early. Um, and, and you really have at least a sense of who you're interested in. Um, I do think it'll be interesting to see, more importantly, is how the development of picks happens in this environment. So, so if I'm drafting this year, I'm placing a high priority on, on character. I'm placing a high priority on self-motivator because I'm not able to bring somebody into the locker room to surround them with leaders, to get them adjusted to the fact that they now have millions of dollars in their bank account as a first-round draft picker. And I've really got to depend on the fact that I'm paying somebody a lot of money who's going to be working out at home and hopefully staying on track and staying motivated. And I think that's a wildly different introduction to the NFL lifestyle than would normally be the case. And I, I think that's going to be one of the interesting stories to watch as this plays out is the kids who go off a cliff with a whole bunch of money and without kind of the parameters and, and boundaries and, and schedule to keep them busy and the opportunity to go get in a lot of trouble. Uh, is that like your dream? I mean, cause I remember talking to you, I think like years ago, I think you said like being a coach would be like, is what you wanted to do. Um, God knows it's not practicing the law. Um, you know, so like, is that your, I mean, is that still like for you something that you want to pursue or are you, is it too late in life to get into that? Or will you so, like, maybe be a yeah. high school coach down the road or something like that? Yeah. So, so I'll answer that question two ways. One is, I, and this I, is I, again, after you somehow trick everyone into running for a third set of no, yeah, no, Listen, I don't, I don't say anything with certainty, but I will say with certainty, I don't care if I'm eligible for another eight tomorrow, that ain't happening. Um, look, I'll you might, I just want to bring up, I just want to go on record while I have it so I can, because yeah, yeah. I've said it to somebody, we are not going to be done with redistricting by 2022. Um, people are going to get an extra set of two years or something like that. Like, because I like, I like I was talking to with a Democratic consultant and they're like they had all these plans about like when this person was that person. Out. I'm like, you know, there's not going to be redistricting on time. They're like, what are you talking about? There has to be. That would be impossible. I'm like, so I'd like to introduce you to somebody. These are my friends, the Republicans in Florida. They don't they, like if you say like, oh, it's impossible. This would never happen. There's no way they can pull this off. Um it's exactly what's going to happen. Coronavirus is going to push back census data. I think that it will be an opportunity. If there is an opportunity to exploit, and I'm not casting aspersions on it, where you somehow delay the redistricting process one cycle, like, you know, where, hey, we got the census data back, you know, in uh, February 2022, coronavirus, sorry. We, we still have to go through the process and we can't get this all done in time. And everybody who's an incumbent, which is all of us, uh, we're gonna get another two years on the clock. Sorry about it, anybody. And then, and you, you, the Democrats go along with it because they're incumbents too. 
And I, you wait and see how. There's there's one flaw in your logic. There's there's Go one ahead. flaw in your Go plan. Ahead. There's one flaw in your plan. Uh, the only impact, if that were to be the case, and, and I actually disagree with your prognostication, um, but let's 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 play your hypothetical out. Um, it is true. You that see the blog get, that's coming, right? I mean, you see the yeah, you, you, the, the lawsuits are thing. coming. All, all that's true, but but <laughs> even if it delays redistricting, all it does is extend the period of time which an eligible representative represents that same district. Right. The Constitution, sure. the Constitution would still bar me, um, even if I wanted to. Um, from sticking around that long, because at that point I will have served for eight consecutive years if I if I was still in office at that time. Um, who, and so even if stop? there were, who's gonna, and I'm not trying to be like if me, you. The answer if, is me. Oh, you will. Let's, sure. let's put let's let's think about it this way, right? Like the most off-brand thing I could ever do, given all of the work I've spent my time on, and the focus, and the priorities, and the name calling, all the mud I've been dragged through, is to turn around and say I don't care about the state constitution. That's true. I will say I could see if it is a way if there is a way, especially if the census data comes back weird or something like that. And I'm not again, I'm not casting aspersions on anybody by saying this. If there is a way where it is to the Republican advantage to somehow extend the clock here, it will be taken. It, that advantage will be exploited. But, but I, I'm going to give you another flaw in the logic. I'm going to give you another flaw in the logic. Um, don't forget that we live under districts that were effectively written by the League of Women Voters. Yeah, but not in the House. These, these districts, the House. sure they were. Not they. Yeah, we no, just no. complied. With, no, 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 we just complied with the law. There's a yeah, difference, right? There, there's, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum, right? There's a range. The yep. Senate maps are far more adversary um, to, to the Senate than ours. So there's no doubt about it. My point is um, there is no advantage for Republicans whatsoever uh, to, to prolong season. these maps. Well, and, and here's the thing. It's like right now, like, and even though there isn't any, there aren't as many races up right now, like, you could absolutely make the case that, um, well, I mean, they're just, if I think you're going to see, I would be surprised to see a challenger win, even more so than previous election cycles, given the fact that there's no money is going to go to a challenger. You're not going to be able to do the things that a challenger would do, which is like get out there. Oh, I walked 40,000 doors and right. the incumbent sat on his ass. Uh, yep. Like none of that is going to happen. And people like, again, it, like it's like what happened yesterday in New York. Like they canceled the presidential election in New York. Yeah, that's it's just a it's a foregone conclusion. I get it. But that wasn't like, you know, I know you're never going to admit measure. the EOC, but she was kind of right yesterday that. Like that should have. If she said, "Yeah," if she's saying that, then she and I are in lockstep on that issue. Right. Like uh, that is an extreme measure when government can cancel an election, and and and, I mean, so so to your point, right? Like it's insanity when you start going down that path. Um, But but I think we also like I think what's interesting to your point um, is I've always been curious to know, like with all the money that gets spent on campaigns and all the things, obviously. Uh, running an efficient, intelligent campaign matters. Um, but in most races, I've always wondered, like, if you literally did nothing, both candidates, what would happen? Oh, and I we're going to get a little bit of a case study yeah, if yeah. this trend keeps up, right? Like, how much actually moves voters? How many voters look at R or D? How many people say, bad day today, so I'm changing teams on my ballot? Whatever it is. But how many of them are actually moved by commercials or mail or knocks or that kind of thing, we know knocking works, right? But like, 
what actually moves voters and to what extent is the electorate up for grabs? I think it's a lot less than people really think. Um, and I think that's an indictment on how tribal we've become, which is which is not a healthy or good thing. I love, I'll, I'll, you know, like I've said this and I'm not saying this like, like lightning will come in here and strike me as I say this, but like floridapolitics.com, we are going to be so much more important in three months in this campaign cycle than we've ever had, than we've ever been, because number one, you're not going to be able to walk door to door. So everything else, uh, like everything that you do in a campaign that isn't walking door is done because you're trying to make up for walking door to door. So you, you go to television because you can't, you can't physically meet every voter. Yeah, 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 you're trying to get to the voter in all scenarios. It's just a question of physically, digitally, or right. on TV, or and right. So What's the medium? But yeah, for sure. You take out physical now, so everything yep. on the digital and TV side. On the TV, I got two things going there. Number one, I think, you know, yes, more people are going to be watching TV, but I think, I think there's going to be a lot less money for like the candidates will have less money to buy airtime on, and I don't know where that's going to meet in terms of like, well, you know. Our rates up because rates will go people, way up. Well, our rates. I think that they will. So I just. I don't think. I don't it's think. Just supply, it's just supply and demand. It's just supply and demand, Petey. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I think if you like, for all the mail vendors out there, I think the last thing people want is fifteen pieces of mail that they have to touch yeah. in their mailbox. Yeah. So you take out physical, TV, and and mail. And that means you're left with, you know, putting your face on a urinal cake and advertising on Florida politics. And once they sell out all their urinal cakes, we're going to be the only ones left standing. I mean, so I think like just us having profiles, just, you know, people. And so this is basically saying, Jamie, after we get off the phone, you know, make sure that, you know, you're advertising with us. But no, I really do think <laughs> that's my long answer. I do think. We're just going to be in the spot, and it'll be interesting. The, the only way you're going to upset an incumbent, I think, this this cycle is with a really savvy digital uh, campaign that you're using all the mediums that are out there to to get your message out. Otherwise, the incumbents, I think, are just going to get reelected by default because nobody's going to know who a challenger is. I, I, I mean, I think there's I, I think there's there's some truth to that. I'm going to take us back to answer your question because I'm not going to. Uh, I, I have to make a confession to you that uh, I can't believe we've never talked about. But you asked the question of, like, do I want to go back to coaching? And and I'm going to answer this two ways. Um, one, nothing makes me happier than being on a field and, and, and coaching. Um, it's just, you know, we all have different things in our life that um, we really just kind of love to do. And, and so there's no doubt that uh, on a daily or weekly basis, I think about burning the ships and, and going back to that world. Um, I'll say this. One of the things that held me back is um, it, there's a, there's an old joke that pastors would tell. Um, and my mom used to tell this joke uh, in different settings. But she would say, you know, there was this lady on on the roof of her house and a, a, a flood was coming through a hurricane. And a fisherman comes by in a boat and says, ma'am, you need to get in the boat and yep. let's go. Uh, we're going to get you out of here. Right. And she says, no, God's going to save me. And then, of course, the Coast Guard boat comes by. Kind of same thing. God's going to save me. Helicopter comes by. Coast Guard says, ma'am, grab the ladder. We got to get you out of here. She said, no, God's going to save me. Um, and, uh, and, and then she gets to heaven. She asks God, she says, hey, you know, I thought you were going to save me. He said, look, I sent a, a John boat. I sent a Coast Guard boat and a mm -hmm. helicopter. What else did you need? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so so my past, uh, I don't know that anybody has ever screwed up the coaching profession or missed more opportunities of significance than I did in my early 20s. My, my first boss uh, that gave me a chance in the game was a guy named Tommy Tuberville, who's about to 
likely be a next U.S. senator from the state of Alabama. Um, the coach that I worked for on that staff to start uh, was a guy named Gene Chizik. And, uh, and then the wideout job opened that next fall, and I always wanted to be an offensive coordinator. I played wideout, wanted to coach wideout quarterbacks. So the wideout job opened, so I leave Coach Chizik. Coach Chizik takes his student assistant, the other student assistant he had, takes him to Texas to make him his, his graduate assistant, takes him to Iowa State to be a, a secondary coach. And Jeff Gaines is off and having a great career now, great guy uh, that I still kind of follow from afar. Um, so I, I, I leave uh, Gene Chizik. The defensive coordinator we hire to come in after is Will Muschamp. Will Muschamp offers me the job to come back and be his student assistant. Pathway to get a graduate assistant, then you get your, your position job somewhere. And, uh, and I turned Will Muschamp down. And I said, hey, I really appreciate it, but I want to stay on the offensive side of the ball. And so I spent a couple years on the off offensive side of the ball. And uh, we're sitting outside uh, of, of Jordan-Hare Stadium my last year. And this was at a time when the NCAA only allowed you to have one graduate assistant on offense and on defense. Um, so you had a total of two, one on each side of the ball. They could stay there no longer than three years. So getting a graduate assistant job used to be really hard. Now those rules have been lifted. It's a lot easier. Um, but at the time, it was really hard to find a good graduate assistant job. And so I had kind of been on the search and trying to figure out and didn't know what pathway I wanted to go and wrestling a little bit. Do I want to coach, not coach? And uh, one, of, uh, one of my best friends at Auburn was the oldest of five boys. All five played SEC football as specialty players, either long snappers or holders. And I knew the dad, Mr. Crowfoot, was super close with, with the Holtz family. And, and pretty connected and we're sitting outside the stadium after the old Miss game it's about 10 o'clock at night and mr crowfoot looks at me and said jamie how's the uh, how's the ga search going and i i said well i'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit the job's not gonna be open at auburn and you know trying to figure it out and he said well hey i hope it's okay i took some liberty um i called a, a dear friend of mine who jamie I, I really think this guy's going places and i called him and i said hey i i got a guy who wants to be an offensive ga do you, do you have an opening and he has an opening and he said jamie the best i could tell it kind of set up like don't screw up the interview and 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 you've got your GA job. He said, now the only bad news is you'd have to go to Bowling Green, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I said, Mr. Crowfoot, I, I really appreciate it. Um, but, but I want to stay in the South. And, and so I can't thank you enough for, for looking out for me, but, but I'm going to kind of keep looking for, for a job here in the South. Uh, flash to the end of the story. I would have never gone to Bowling Green, Ohio. I would have gone straight to Utah with a guy named Urban Meyer. And oh, so uh, I I, I'm not sure that you can screw up a profession uh, more than I screwed up. And so when people say, how'd you get into politics? Part of it is, I screwed up my life plan so badly I had uh, I had no other choice. All right, Jamie Grant, that's a great place for me to bring this in for a landing. Um, by far the long by by a measure of three, the longest pod that I've done for hunkering down. So I'll probably break this up into two points. Um, but it was great talking to you. Uh, any last final thoughts you want to? Do I do I want to do I want to give you an open ended question? Um, you know, I, it's not as it's not as dangerous as you think. Look, what I would say is is kind of just, and we're all trying to fight through this together. So to the extent we can, try and stay sane, stay safe, make good choices, figure out how to kind of exercise your mind and your body, and, and know that there's going to be a backside to this that we're all going to come out of. But let's figure out how, you know, we can kind of transcend some of our differences from from time and and figure out how to get this thing opened as quickly as we can get it opened. All right, brother, I appreciate the time. Likewise, man. Be good. Take care. All right, see you.